Way out, way out. We're in, a, we're in a study of the first section of the book of Exodus. Uh, since our annual theme this year is more than conquerors, the Exodus of Israel seemed a perfect fit for our congregation this summer. Also, I realized a few months ago that while I have taught on the other two sections of the book of Exodus in the past, I've never preached on the actual escape from Egypt in chapters 1 through 15. Quick review, the book is all about the way out. In, in fact, the Hebrew name for this book is Way Out. That's what they called it. The, the later Greek title, Exodus, came, came much, much later. Speaking of which, I got a great letter uh, this week. Someone who studies the Bible with us in another country uh, wrote me to say this. Pastor Wayne, I'm very excited to get back to, the, to Exodus next Sunday, and I was reading ahead in chapters 7 and 8. It seems to me that Way Out is indeed the perfect title, not only for the whole book, but also for this section. They write, look at this, for Israel, God's miracles are their only way out. To Pharaoh, the idea of freedom for God's people seems way out in a very different sense, close quote. Isn't that well said? Of course, you know that applies to each of us as well. We live in a world that gets very angry about the way out freedom and blessing that is showered on God's people, right? We see it. We see it all over the world in every age, just as Jesus promised we would. And we also learn from Exodus what Jesus and Paul emphasized in the New Testament, that God's provision is our only way out. For example, read with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. You read the underlined text. No testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. When life gets hard, when situations are unfair, it is God's almighty hand that provides for each of his people a way out. Amen? Speaking of learning from Exodus, open your Bible to Exodus chapter 7. Second book of your Bible, 7th chapter, let's pick it up in verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, oh, Moses, sorry, got to interrupt myself. Moses, I forgot, very special Sunday here this week because... Moses himself is with us this week. <laughs> While I was on study leave last week, somebody, I don't know who, came and left this in my office. Moses action figurine with actual staff and Ten Commandments. And actually, it's written in Hebrew. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. Very special. So Moses is with us. So we're just going to put Moses right here so he can enjoy. There you go. All right, back to, back to the text. All right. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh tells you perform a miracle, tell Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh. It will become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. So nice to finally read that about them. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a serpent. But then Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same thing by their occult practices. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a serpent. But Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. However, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, his heart hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Uh, in our notes, uh, they're inside your bulletin. You got a bulletin when you came and open it up. There's notes there that will help us as we study together. On the left-hand side, you'll see we titled this section, The Sign. Now, we have a lot to read today as God expands his narrative. You know, up to this point, we've been learning about Moses and, and the Exodus in basically 40-year chunks. Well, not, not so today. The Lord's going to cover just mere days in great, great, great detail. And because the text relates details so clearly here, you and I need to, listen, we need to step back and make sure we comprehend the big picture. Every section we read, we're going to have to make sure we get the big picture. Passages like this resemble a pointillist painting. 
You know, it, you can get so caught up in the points of color, you miss the beauty of the, of the whole picture. So, first, we'll make certain we grasp the context of each section. Context is always critically important in any biblical passage, but here we can, we can lose the whole idea if we miss the context. Now, for this first miracle performed before Pharaoh the sign, we must remember that snakes are Egypt's ruling symbol. God very likely uses a snake here because a snake is the symbol of Egypt. Lower Egypt, southern Egypt, which is the source of power for these new kingdom pharaohs. It was called the Cobra Kingdom, all right? Snake is, Cobra Kai, snake is always, uh, is always the symbol of Egypt. It always re- and the snake in particular represents power. It, rep- it represents their worldly wisdom. In fact, this, this idea grew throughout the ancient world. Far beyond Egypt, a snake became a symbol throughout much of the Mediterranean world for worldly wisdom. That's why Asclepius, the Greek god of medicine, uh, has on his staff a snake. It represents worldly wisdom and power. So, with that in mind, look at your text. What does it mean when the Yahweh snake eats up the other snakes? It shows that all wisdom, all real power is in God. He is the master and controller of the world. Whatever we may think that we know, whatever powers appear to us really large or frightening, God is ultimately the one who controls them. Nothing can or will stand against his purposes. His wisdom is best. His power prevails. To switch back to Greek thought, he is the alpha and the omega. So tell me, what do you think is the proper response to that truth? It's to trust Yahweh. It's to soften toward God, to rejoice and to bow before him. But the result in our text is very different. Pharaoh's heart actually hardens. Again, this just expands the biggest idea here that God is sovereign. It's under his hand that these coming events will unfold. And as we saw a few weeks ago, the balance of responsibility under God's oversight is fascinating here. Look, Look at this. Ten times Exodus says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And yet, ten times in the book of Exodus, the text tells us that God was the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Do you see that? Now, in Romans chapter 9 in your New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses this as an example of God's inscrutable will. Paul says God's sovereignty cannot be limited, but neither can it be boxed in. God mercifully allows people to respond and holds them accountable, even as he is completely in charge. It is both, friends. Don't let yourself miss the whole picture. God hardens Pharaoh, and Pharaoh refuses God's word on his own. It is both. My old professor, John Hanna, at Dallas Seminary, he wrote a brilliant summary of what this means for us moving forward in Exodus. Look what John writes. He says, Repentance is a gift from God that he grants to some by his grace, though in his infinite love he desires that all be saved. God uses people as part of his plans, which is Paul's understanding of Pharaoh's obstinacy. You can read about that in Romans chapter 9. In God's infinite wisdom, he raised up this Pharaoh for that occasion so that in his rebellion against God, he might be used as an instrument for God's glory. Since Pharaoh's heart would remain calloused, it was ultimately necessary to compel him by the last of the plagues, the death of the firstborn. Amazingly, Moses told him this right at the beginning. Exodus chapter 4, he said this is how this is going to end. Egyptians prized their firstborn sons, treating them as special. Strikingly, Israel is God's son and therefore sacred to him, close quote. Israel is God's son, and the sovereign God will fight for the Hebrews' freedom. Thus, we are prepared to encounter plague number one, first of the ten. Pick it up in verse uh, 14 of chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart's hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. When you see him walking out to the water, stand ready to meet him by the bank of the Nile. 
Take in your hand the staff that turned into a snake. Tell him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to tell you, let my people go so they may worship me in the wilderness. But so far you have not listened. This is what Yahweh says. Here's how you will know that I am Yahweh. Watch. I will strike the water in the Nile with the staff in my hand, and it will turn to blood. The fish in the Nile will die. The river will stink, and the Egyptians will be unable to drink water from it. So the Lord, instructed, so the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, canals, ponds, all their water reservoirs, and they will become blood. There will be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in wooden and stone containers. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and his officials, he raised the staff and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water of the Nile was turned to blood. The fish in the Nile died. The river smelled so bad the Egyptians could not drink water from it. There was blood throughout the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same thing by their occult practices. So Pharaoh's heart hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned around, went into his palace, didn't even take this to heart. All the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink because they could not drink the water from the river. Now, I know to many this is a very familiar story, but the context may not be so well known. So let's, let's step back, okay, and consider the context. First thing you need to know, the Nile represents Egyptian power and prosperity. I've read a bunch of books on Egypt, well, I, 10 or 12 different books on the history of Egypt. This may be one of the best. Paul Johnson's The Civilization of Ancient Egypt. And Dr. Johnson does a really nice job making, I think, a compelling case that the self-concept, the self-concept of ancient Egyptians was inextricably tied to the Nile. You see, the Nile was stable. It wasn't like other ancient rivers. It wasn't like the rivers in your backyards the last couple of weeks. The, the, the Nile was very stable. Egypt fed themselves quite well. They fed much of the world because of the Nile. The Nile had very predictable floods. The Nile, the Nile was a, a source of, of all of life. Everybody in Egypt lived within at least a couple of miles at the most of the Nile or one of the canals or one of the tributaries. Turning the Nile to blood symbolized the death of Egypt. Physically and metaphorically. And on another level, smiting the Nile is a blow against all Egyptian religion. There were four gods or goddesses connected with the Nile. Uh, Hapi was the official Nile god, or you, you could say goddess, since she was a, she was a weird hermaphrodite, uh, he-she kind of god, years before Bruce Jenner. Um, Osiris... <laughs> Osiris was a really creepy, incestual god. By the way, Osiris is in your Bible. He's called Baal, or as we say in Texas, Baal, uh, in your Bible. Um, he's also associated with the Nile. Uh, Osiris is the father of Hapi, and he's the god of all storms and the god of all rivers. By the way, something you know about Osiris. Osiris supposedly was invincible. Uh, his story is that he died. I know, he's a god, but he died. And, and he went down to the underworld, and then his sister-slash-lover-slash-wife, so-so-creepy, Isis, by the way, she's called Asherah in your Bible, she went down in the underworld, grotesque scene I won't share with you in mixed company, and, and brings him back to life. What happens is he's embalmed, okay? He's stuffed. Uh, he, He's the first zombie, okay? And Osiris comes back, and so he's kind of resurrected. But the main thing an Egyptian thought was, because he's embalmed, he has no blood, he can't bleed, therefore he's invincible, okay? That's Osiris, very connected, the god of rivers, very connected with this. Then we have the crocodile god Sobek, um, and another, another god, he's a, he's a pharaoh, one of the early pharaohs, Unas, uh, who was turned into a local god. Now, unlike Osiris, Unas is trapped in the underworld. 
Together, Sobek and Unos are very important. They're responsible for the predictable, life-giving flood of the Nile. That flood brought fresh soil to their fields every year. That flood filled all the canals that went through Egypt. Now, with all that in mind, consider what it means that God transformed the Nile into blood. Osiris bleeds. That means he isn't invincible after all. Even when the demonic conjurers replicate the water to blood, Osiris' reputation is already smashed. He bleeds. And Sobek and Unas cannot bring life. Look, no flood sweeps the blood away. Hapi is helpless. This is why Exodus 12 will later say that Yahweh executes judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The physical and theological context matters. So does the historical. You see, back in the beginning of Exodus, we learned that the pharaohs of the new kingdom of Egypt were decidedly anti-Semitic. They instituted a series of three horrible pogroms against the Jews, the, the worst of which was a temporary declaration of a sexually determined partial birth abortion. All young boys in Egypt, all newborn Israeli boys were to be killed. And while our abortionists today use medical implements to kill babies, the Egyptians used the Nile. The Nile was the tool that Pharaoh used to kill all those Hebrew boys. But now, under the hands of Moses and Aaron, the blood of the Hebrew victims is symbolically spreading throughout Egypt. God promised vengeance and he has brought it. The result has two parts. First, we again read about Pharaoh's hard heart. The man won't listen. I mean, he's like a, he's like a Facebook user unfriending somebody whose opinion uh, he disagrees with. And he, and he stomps back into his palace to go watch MSNBC uh, or, or Fox News or whatever he agrees with. And, and there's, there's, even, there's even more behind this hard heart phrase that we should know. Once again, I think Dr. Hannah explains it better than I can. John, John writes this. Another factor in God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart is that it was a reversal of an Egyptian belief. This is really cool. Follow this. Egyptians believed that when a person died, his heart was weighed in the hall of judgment. If one's heart was heavy with sin, that person was judged. A stone beetle scarab was placed on the heart of a deceased person to suppress his natural tendency to confess sin, which would subject him, in the Egyptian thinking, to judgment. This hardening of the heart by the scarab resulted in salvation for the deceased. Close quote. Do you see how completely backwards that is? Biblical thinking is that confession is good because confession draws the person into an honest relationship with the covenant God, Yahweh. But the Egyptian gods are not personal. Like all pagan gods, they use humans. They don't serve humans. D Dr. Hannah goes on. However, God reversed this process in Pharaoh's case. Instead of his heart being suppressed so he was silent about his sin and thus delivered, as his heart became hardened, he confessed his sin. And his sinful, heavy heart resulted in judgment, close quote. Pharaoh's scarab hard heart is about more than him. It's about more than Egypt. It's even about more than Israel. It's about the nature of the sovereign God. Pharaoh thinks he's escaping judgment by stiffening up, while the opposite is actually true. And we see that, and we smugly think, wow, thank goodness we're not like that. <laughs> but we are. When you and I are wrong... We very often don't admit it straight away and ask forgiveness. Oh, no, 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 no. We, we, we refuse to admit that we're wrong for fear of the legal department, right? We double down on our stupidity. We spend time researching our rights. We demand that everyone else accommodate our sin. And folks, this isn't true for just other people. We Christians are like Pharaoh. And that's a special tragedy because God tells us to be soft of heart, to confess our sins, because he promises that that's where we find healing in Christ. 
Second part of the result is the Egyptian people have to scramble for water beneath the surface. The text tells us that all surface water was contaminated. That means every tributary, every canal, every cistern, all the wooden storage barrels all turned to blood. People have to get into the underground <laughs> table just to get water. Wow, it's like, it's like something out of a post-apocalyptic movie, except this really happened. And it lasted a week. One week later, that's followed with plague number two. Uh, go back to your text, verse 25. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile, chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and tell him, This is what Yahweh says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them go, then I will plague all your territory with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs. They will come up and, and go into your palace, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your officials and your people, into your ovens and kneading bowls. The frogs will come up on you, your people, and all your officials. The Lord then said to Moses, Tell Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, canals, ponds, cause frogs to come up into the land of Egypt. When Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their occult practices and brought frogs up onto the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Ask Yahweh to remove the frogs from me and, and my people. Then I'll let the people go they can sacrifice to Yahweh. Moses said to Pharaoh, You make the choice rather than me. When should I ask on behalf of you, your officials, your people, that the frogs be taken away from you and your houses and remain only in the Nile? When? Tomorrow, he answered. Moses replied, as you've said, so that you may know there is no one like Yahweh our God. The frogs will go away from you, your house, your officials, your people. The frogs will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord for help concerning the frogs that he had brought against Pharaoh. The Lord did as Moses had said. The frogs in the houses, courtyards, and fields died. They piled them in countless heaps, and there was a terrible odor in the land. But when Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This year in North Texas, we can somewhat relate to this plague, can we not? <laughs> Frogs and toads are everywhere, thanks to the unusually wet weather. When I was a boy, um, my brother and my best friends and I were all committed frog giggers. Um, one of my buddies uh, had a farmhouse, and around their farmhouse, there were so many frogs. They were such a plague that Dr. McGinnis actually paid us for every frog we killed. <laughs> that pecuniary motivation led to a lot of late-night frog hunts with our homemade gigs, and we loved it. We had so much fun, except, except on the occasion when you would find a raccoon who was also out frog hunting. <laughs> Those suckers are scary at night. I mean, really, really frightening. Now, um, <clears throat> my friend's mom... I, th I thought of her, as I read verse 14 about the terrible odor in the land, when I was first studying this, I, I pictured Mrs. McGinnis. Because sometimes, as boys are wont to do, we would forget what we were supposed to do. And the rule was very clear. When we came back from hunting all the frogs, we were to count them, and then we were to put them in the pile, and we were to burn them. And we'd forget. You know, we get back late at night, and the next morning, we would wake up to the sound of all of our names, first and middle and last, all being called by a very angry Mrs. McGinnis out front because those piles of frogs had rot and they, sm they smelled like Egypt. It was terrible. Now, on the right side of your notes, you'll see the context listed. The context of this place is fascinating. The Egyptian god of pregnant women was, was this creature, Heket. Uh, she's usually depicted in the form of a frog. Egyptologists think that this came about because because of the transition, you know the transition from tadpoles to frogs, well, it paralleled the rather advanced. The Egyptians had a rather advanced understanding of what went on in the womb. So they understood that that was a, a strange change, and so they used a, a frog goddess to represent that. Heket was the, understandably, the guardian of unborn children and of newborn children. Thus, 
it seems that the plague of frogs is surely a grim reminder of how the Egyptians didn't protect the Hebrew babies. The terrible crimes of 80 years previous have finally come home. That's the context. The result of the frog plague is a very specific display of God's power. On cue, Moses asks for the frogs to die. God kills them. He, he even does so in a particular area on the day that Pharaoh chooses. This is something the necromancers of Egypt couldn't do. They're like horoscope predictors. They're like Nostradamus prophets, dabbling with demonic things but only working in generalities. Yahweh instead is incredibly precise. There is no one like him. Of course, once again, the Pharaoh hardens his heart. Once the pressure's off, he goes back to his set pattern. And once again, we resemble that remark, right? Once the crisis is passed, what do we do? We stop praying. And we start relying on our own strength again. We start turning to our own ego again. By God's grace, we must move away from our hard-heartedness and turn to Yahweh. We must go to the covenant God who is like no other. By the way, that name that he keeps using for himself in this text, Yahweh, it, it's a very special word. It means to be. He's the God that is. And it's a covenant name. It's a, it's a special covenant relationship by God's grace. We must turn to him instead of our ego, which stands for edges God out. All God's people said? All right, now let's hop into plague number three. Uh, you like that? Okay, verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, and it will become gnats throughout the land of Egypt. And they did this. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff, and when he struck the dust of the earth, gnats were on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats throughout the land of Egypt. The magicians tried to produce gnats using their occult practices, but they could not. The gnats remained on man and beast. This is the finger of God, the magicians said to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's heart hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Context of this one's difficult. Uh, we can't tell from the Hebrew if these were gnats or lice or sand fleas or mosquitoes. Uh, the experts say that kinim, uh, what my Bible translates gnats, literally just means annoying insects. Uh, whatever they are, they are incredibly bothersome. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever been bothered by lice or gnats or mosquitoes, some annoying insect. Raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> Almost all hands, we can, we can relate nearly all of us to the torment on Egypt. Those of you who didn't raise your hands apparently have never been to Louisiana in the spring um, or Minnesota in the summer uh, or Wisconsin in the summer as well. And what freaks me, you know what freaks me out most about this one in terms of context? It's that the occult magicians couldn't replicate this, this one. To me, if, if you're going to dabble with demons, the one thing you ought to be able to do is produce annoying insects. There's nothing more demonic. I, it's, it's, it's fascinating. That takes us to the result. The sorcerers admit that they can't duplicate this. That's our result. They tried. They failed. And as a result, they recognize the finger of God. You see, that's a very telling phrase. Now, this, this is a phrase that appears outside the Bible. It's used by many, many cultures during the large period of time that we call the Bronze Age and actually the early period of what we call the Iron Age. Whenever you're reading anything and you see finger of God, you know that's talking about special creative power. For example, 500 years later in Israel, David would write this in Psalm 8, uh, Psalm 8 verse 3. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you set in place. You see, finger of God is talking about his creativity. He's the creator. So when these pagans 
say that this plague is the finger of God. They're using singular creator language. In other words, they're acknowledging God as creator. The American scholar Peter Enns summarizes, I thought this was so good, I put it in your notes. Uh, Take a look. Peter writes, the plagues show that Israel's God can control the elements. Pharaoh's magicians could reproduce the first two plagues as well as the staff turning into a snake, but no more. Also, only Israel's God could make them stop. God has at his disposal the created order to bring about Israel's salvation. Hence, through the plagues, he shows himself to be the true creator and deliverer, close quote. But once again, Pharaoh wouldn't listen. Even when his own advisors are recognizing the Lord's hand, the, the, the king just keeps singing old ELO song. Turn to stone, when you were gone, I turned to stone. That, he's stuck. Now, notice a triad pattern here. Uh, this, this is cool. Take a look. Plagues one and two were preceded by a warning from God, right? Warning from God, let my people go. And, and, and then when he didn't respond, the plague came. Plague three came with no warning. I bring that up because the same pattern will continue with the next group of three, although with this exception. From now on, Israel is going to be exempt from all the plagues, right? The plagues will only fall on the Egyptians. Here, take a look. Uh, plague number four. The Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh when you see him going out to the water. Poor Pharaoh, can't even go potty in the morning without Moses. Tell him, this is what Yahweh says. Let my people go so they may worship me. But if you will not let my people go, then I will send swarms of flies against you, your officials, your people, and your houses. The Egyptians' houses will swarm with flies. And so will the land where they live. But on that day, I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen, where my people are living. No flies will be there. This way you will know that I, Yahweh, am in the land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will take place tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Thick swarms of flies went into Pharaoh's palace and his officials' houses. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined because of the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the country. But Moses said, It would not be right to do that because what we will sacrifice to the Lord our God is detestable to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what the Egyptians detest in front of them, won't they stone us? We must go a distance of three days into the wilderness and sacrifice the Lord our God as he instructs us. Pharaoh responded, I will, I will let you go and sacrifice the Lord your God in the wilderness, but don't go very far. Make an appeal for me. As soon as I leave you, Moses said, I will appeal to the Lord. And tomorrow the swarms of flies will depart from Pharaoh, his officials, and his people. But Pharaoh must not act deceptively again by refusing to let people go and sacrifice to the Lord. Then Moses left Pharaoh's presence and appealed to the Lord. The Lord did as Moses said. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, his officials, his people. Not one was left, but... Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Context is wild. Of course, piles of dead frogs are a perfect place for God to bring maggots. It makes sense that flies would appear soon after. But what isn't to be expected is that they would disappear completely on demand. If you know anything about flies, you know that once they get rolling, they're hard to stop. But in Exodus chapter 8, God stops their whole cycle on a dime. Our genetics class uh, at my college required that each student buy a terrarium and raise these fruit fly maggots. And, and we did it to study genetic variation. The terrariums were kept in our own apartments and, and we observed the larvae through all their development and their maturation and their mating. And then we tracked their genetic changes through subsequent generations. And, and it, it didn't take very long. Fruit flies only live about 30 days and they lay lots and lots of eggs and so there were continual new flies coming day after day. One of my buddies, who is now a doctor in this area, a person to whom people trust their lives, I just wanna stress that, this man accidentally knocked the lid off of his terrarium one night. 
Oh, oh, you, I can't eat, so gross. I can't even express it. We could not stop those flies. They just kept coming and coming for days. But God did. And this was surely a slap in the face of an Egyptian god called Kepi, uh, uh, sorry, Kepri, now, also known as Uachit, depending on which source you're using. Uh, Kepri was a god that manifested as a fly. And yet, even his priests and the diviners of the greatest empire in the world could not do what Yahweh did. They could not stop the flies. Yahweh is over all. Uachit is nothing but a bug to be zapped by God. And the result is that Pharaoh was impressed enough that he finally responded, at least, at least partially. I mean, look, he tries to bargain. But Moses is concerned for a riot. Remember, the Egyptians worshipped animals the Hebrews would sacrifice to Yahweh, especially the cow. Uh, for Israel to have a festival near the Nile, it would, it would be like, it would be like one, of you, one of you Christians going to Old Delhi and selling hamburgers on the corner, right? It's not going to end well, all right? So Pharaoh gives in finally, but then he illegally withdraws his agreement. And I, I use illegally on purpose. Under the ancient rules of kingdom engagement, Moses is the representative of a legitimate people group with a legitimate God. That makes this an international treaty negotiation. Two things stand out in this treaty negotiation. Number one, the Egyptian king proves totally faithless. He has all the unreliability of Adolf Hitler or Yasser Arafat, other world leaders who also hated Jews. Number two, Moses is authenticated as a world leader in his own right. Just as Yahweh is greater than any Egyptian god, so Moses is proven to be much more trustworthy than Pharaoh. So God sends plague number five. Uh, go to chapter nine. Uh, verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, this is what Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them go and keep holding them, then the Lord's hand will bring a severe plague against your livestock in the field, the horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all the Israelites own will die. And the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. The Lord did this the next day. All the Egyptian livestock died, but none among the Israelite livestock died. Pharaoh sent messengers who saw that not a single one of the Israelite livestock was dead, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not let the people go. The context concerns, concerns that sacredness of cattle that we discussed. Uh, Apis was the, the bull god revered in Egyptian religion. Cattle were also sacred to these gods, uh, Ta, Nirvis, and Hehor. Uh, the death of all these cows is surely a massive blow to the prestige of these false gods. Do you see what's happening here? Egypt's being stripped bare of all pretense about her idols. The, th this event would also have temporarily, temporarily but very severely have damaged agriculture and transportation. Right? Now, of course, only those out in the fields perished. Think about it. With, with one-day notice, all these plagues people are noticing, surely some wise Egyptians took their livestock in from the fields because God said he'd kill the ones in the fields. Nonetheless, the impact had to be serious. The result is that Pharaoh's heart is still heavy and the Israeli animals are safe and sound, which sets up plague number six. Take a look. <coughs> then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of furnace soot and Moses is to throw it toward heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. Think, think uh, flu powder. Okay, uh, um, or LeBron James, you know, throw, in, throw it up in the air. All right, throw it up in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the entire land of Egypt. It, it will become festering boils on man and beast throughout the land of Egypt. So they took furnace soot and stood before Pharaoh. Moses threw it toward heaven, and it became festering boils on man and beast. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had told 
Moses. Context has two aspects. Literarily, take a look at the slide. This is the third in the cycle, and just as before, the third one has no warning, right? Two with warning, then one without, just as with the first set, so the second set. Now, we're going to stop reading there today because the literature changes here. After this, the plagues come in a, in a different pattern. The religious context is wild. Uh, Sekhmet and Serapis were the healing goddess and god in the Egyptian pantheon. They were undoubtedly called on in this crisis to no avail. The priest magician's falling indicates their inadequacy. Yahweh God is greater than any other power. The result is, this time, did you catch that? It's the Lord who hardens Pharaoh's heart. The other result is the magicians totally surrender. Notice the sorcerers couldn't stand before Moses. They're covered in boils as well. Now that's significant because it's very unlikely that these, that these occult demonizers were, um, that they were Egyptian. Most people who did this kind of work in the ancient world came from the center of occult practice in the world, which was the city of Babylon, the city-state of Babylon. So these are probably Babylonians, but, but notice foreign as they were, they're also helpless. They've also got pusserating, painful boils because, my friends, that's what happens when you fight for the wrong god. Eventually, you will be unable to stand before God's humble people. And by the way, that's the big takeaway from all these encounters. We must repent from our false gods. Look what the plagues expose. They expose the difference between the real deal of Yahweh and the false advertisement of idolatry. And false gods almost always advertise well. They, they look good. They seem to offer real solutions. That's why we fall for them. And I do mean we. You and I have idols. We entertain them. We even coddle them. Admittedly, sometimes without even realizing it. And that's why right now you and I are going to ask the only sovereign God to expose our idols, even the ones to which we are blind. And then we're going to spend a moment repudiating those idols. Rather than wait for a time of Egyptian crisis, you and I are going to turn from our pantheon of lies to the covenant Lord God, Yahweh. Amen? All right, please join me in prayer. Let's turn to the Lord. Yahweh, we Christians, and there are many of us here who are Christians, we pray in repentance. We come to you trusting the only true God. You love us enough to expose the inadequacy of our idolatry. And we beg you to do so. Lord, for me, for every one of my friends here, for all of my Christian family, show us what we rely upon besides you. What we praise instead of you. What we trust more than you. What we fear. Lord, expose those idols and help us turn from them. Father, just like, just like Moses and Aaron, we can't do it. We need you. We need you. And Father, we pray for those who aren't already in a relationship with Yahweh. Anybody who's studying with us today that is not a believer in Christ, we pray that you draw them to you. Friend, listen. God loves you. That's why he exposes your idolatry because he doesn't want you to settle for something that doesn't work, and they don't work. You know that. Scripture says it. You know it in your soul. You are a sinner. You are separated from God by your sin, and it's true. You cannot, there is nothing you can do, 
no idol, no formula, no power that can get you to where you need to be in a holy relationship with God. But God, knowing that, has reached down to you. God the Son came to earth and He died on the cross to pay what we couldn't pay, to pay for the sins of everyone who trusts Him. And He rose from the dead so that those who trust Him could follow Him in everlasting life. Right now, just trust Him. Talk to God. It's not pagan. The formula doesn't matter. Just talk to God. God, I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. My idols that I rely on can't save me. The things I fear can't save me. Only you can. You're my only way out. And I thank you for Jesus who paid for my sin and I trust him. I repudiate my idols and I put my trust in Jesus, in Yahweh, the covenant God. If you just prayed to trust Christ, raise your hand. I want to rejoice with you. Good for you. Amen. Father, I pray for all of us all of us who are believers in Christ, that we will recognize what this text exposes, that we need you and you alone. 